Several times recently, I've been asked the same question, more or less. People come to me and say that they'd like to get to know Beethoven's string quartets, which is not surprising, given their Olympian reputation. But where's the best place to start? Well, I don't think you could do much better than with the quartet we're going to hear in this concert this evening. Opus 59, number 3, the third of the so-called Razumovsky quartets. This was the set of three quartets Beethoven completed in 1806 for the enlightened and very rich musical connoisseur Count Andreas Kirillovich Razumovsky, Russian ambassador to the Imperial Austrian court. The chance of writing for such discerning ears gave Beethoven the opportunity to explore possibilities of the string quartet medium as never before. You can see Beethoven's imagination rising to this stimulating new challenge right at the beginning of Opus 59, number 3. Yet at the same time, Beethoven invokes an important ancestor. Mozart, and especially Mozart's so-called Dissonance Quartet, K465. As that nickname suggests, there are some fairly queasy harmonies in the slow introduction to Mozart's first movement. The low cello's repeated C's seem steady enough, but then it all clouds over pretty quickly. That's pretty extraordinary for the beginning of a string quartet in the mid-1780s, but Beethoven goes further. Mozart at least allowed us that moment of apparent stability before he started to fog the issue. Beethoven, though, plunges us straight into dissonance, its ambiguity right from the start, and it continues. Of course, you can do things like that when you're writing for a connoisseur. And at the same time, Beethoven was also writing for a special calibre of musicians. The violinist and concertmaster Ignaz Schuppansich was the founder of a virtuoso quartet, an ensemble that, well, might balk at writing like this, but should eventually be able to rise to the challenge.
quartet writing doesn't get any more exciting than that. And that thrilling, brilliant finale is one of the reasons why I think Opus 59 Number 3 is an excellent place to start exploring Beethoven's quartets. But that's just one reason. It's also very compact, not as ferociously elliptically compressed as Opus 90, the quartet Beethoven called Sirius, which invites the question, what does that make the others? But Opus 59 Number 3 is relatively short and rich in contrast, and as we've already heard, it's fascinating right from the start. Let's go back to that opening. The dissonance at the beginning is the archetypally ambiguous discord of the classical era and the Baroque era before it. It's called the diminished seventh. Now that's made up of two so-called tritones, the name for the most ambiguous of all intervals. Medieval theorists called it the Diabolus in Musica, the Devil in Music. At the same time, you can spell that chord as a chain of rising thirds. And as such, the textbooks tell us, you can resolve it, you can release its tension harmonically in a variety of ways. There are so many possibilities. No wonder Beethoven said that mastery of this chord, the diminished seventh, was the key to really effective composition. And here, in the slow introduction to the first movement of Opus 59, number 3, Beethoven seems to take delight in that range of possibilities, all the different ways out of that ambiguous dissonance. You don't have to analyse this music to sense that probing, that testing, the looking at different possible exit channels. Eventually, we arrive at another of those ambiguous diminished seventh chords. Where next, the music seems to say. Beethoven's answer is a little surprising.
So, like Mozart in his dissonance quartet, Beethoven follows the dark probing of the slow introduction with a release of joyous energy. But unlike Mozart, Beethoven does allow himself a few glimpses back to that mysterious, ambiguous opening. When we come to the return of the first theme, the beginning of the recapitulation section, the violin comes to rest on a trill. There's a hush. We sense a preparation for the return of the first theme. Then the four instruments spell out another diminished seventh. Then quickly they resolve it. It's just a moment, just a little touch, but it's possibly sufficient to recall the opening dark uncertainty before the joyous movement begins again. Once you've got the feeling for that ambiguous, queasy seventh chord, you can feel it in other places too, as at the end of that last extract. You can feel it working to destabilise the music, Beethoven challenging himself to find order and clarity from tense uncertainty. That struggle to find order and clarity, meaning in a chaotically ambiguous universe, where, as Beethoven put it, sometimes the opposite is also true, is a recurring feature of Beethoven's greatest work. And this quartet, Opus 59, number 3, is no exception. After the first movement's brightly emphatic end, the slower second movement takes a somewhat almost disconcertingly new. We're now in a wintry minor key. We have just a scrap of a tune. It seems tantalisingly incomplete. And ghostly footsteps on a pizzicato cello. There's something mesmeric about this slow movement. It takes us into a kind of haunted landscape of the mind. Perhaps in itself that's an expression of Beethoven's increasing mental isolation as his deafness got worse. But there's something else here too. In tribute to Count Razumovsky, who commissioned these quartets, Beethoven included Russian folk tunes in Opus 59 numbers 1 and 2. But what about number 3? Well, some people have heard something Russian in that opening melodic phrase. 
It's lilting yet heavy with an ancient sadness. And those low cello pizzicatos do seem to be resonating through vast spaces. Are we voyaging into the Russian steppe here? It does sound a little bit fanciful, yet it's intriguing that that most folk-saturated of all 19th century Russian nationalists, Mussorgsky, loved this movement, so much so that he made a piano arrangement of it. Mussorgsky liked to compare authentic Russian national music to the Germanic classical ethos. The melody of life, he insisted, was important, not that of classicism. Yet this movement spoke to him very deeply. There's more unsettling harmonic probing in this movement, too. And those cello pizzicatos play a big part. Just as the first section seems to be reaching its long-delayed melodic completion, the cello pizzicatos intrude again. something faintly familiar there? That unsettling falling figure, the sigh on the violins, and the harmonic shudder underneath. It's that queasy diminished seventh chord again. In this weirdly captivating slow movement, we find Beethoven working through the tension, the ambiguity of that chord, in new ways. Even the end of this movement suggests that Beethoven hasn't quite resolved the conundrum yet. There are more of those disturbing, ambiguous seventh chords, and the music settles uneasily into the folk-like cadence. Are we coming to rest? No, those ghostly footsteps still haunt the shadows. follow music like that. In the Eroica Symphony, Beethoven follows the black dissolution at the end of his funeral march with a surge of renewing energy in the scherzo. Here, though, in Opus 59, number 3, there's a more disconcerting contrast.
Suddenly, we find ourselves in the middle of an old-fashioned minuet marked grazioso, graceful. Have we returned to the security of the 18th century imperial court after the alienating nocturnal loneliness of the second movement? The cosy formality of this music is a big surprise after what we've heard in the first two movements. Evidently, this is no kind of answer. Maybe it's an illustration of that remark of Beethoven's that sometimes the opposite is also true. The central trio section confirms this with a kind of robust heartiness, at the same time reminding us that violinist Ignaz Schuppansich was clearly comfortable in some very high registers. <laughs> Minuet returns after the trio, giving us a near-elegant symmetry. And then, again, we have the beginnings of change. The last section is marked coda, a sort of tailpiece to the minuet. But actually, it begins to lead us back into the shadows. The formality, the certainty that we knew before, is now replaced by nervous questioning. <laughs> at an expectant pause, exactly as we did at the end of the first movement's slow introduction. Will this lead again to a surge of restorative energy? Oh yes. But Beethoven engineers it this time by an intriguing bit of thematic transformation. Do you remember the minuet's first phrase? Put that up a fifth. and now stand it on its head. And you get this almost manically energetic fugal theme. With the first and second movements, different worlds though they are, Beethoven has found his connection. There's a stunning sense of brilliant life force released in the finale, and yet at the same time it's derived musically from that demure, contained minuet theme. Perhaps this helps explain some words Beethoven wrote over that finale theme in his sketchbooks. Let your deafness no longer be a secret, even in art. 
It's mysterious. Unless you see the transition of the formal minuet theme, and especially its nervous questioning version in the coda, into the wild, abandoned, joyously form-defying fugue, as an indication of Beethoven's titanic resolution, the way Beethoven just about contains the energy of this movement, steers this careering ride in a very fast machine, is awe-inspiring. I do sometimes find myself wondering where and how Beethoven found the courage and determination to keep going in the face of his increasing deafness, his failure to find the love that he longed for, the collapse of his political ideas after what he felt was Napoleon's betrayal, not to mention the failure of the French Revolution. The only answer I can find is in music like this, this surge of restorative energy, all the more breathtaking after the dark enigmas of the first three movements. (laughs) ¶¶ 